When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, hello out there, everyone. Welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. So, Flynn, last night we recorded the bulk of our episode about the 92-93 tour, specifically the 92 leg. Today we got a new archive, and we certainly want to cover that, so we're going back here at the top of the show, and, and we're recording our thoughts on the archive. I'm thrilled with this archive release, Berlin 93. It was actually one of my favorite Crystal Cat releases from that tour. Uh, it had a great sound, and I really enjoyed, enjoyed the set list. And th- now the sound's significantly improved, and it's uh, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, me too. And there's actually a lot to discuss with this show. There's a lot to discuss with the entire 93 leg, and we're actually going to save that for the next episode. So we won't get too much into the structural changes to the show. But really, Bruce was... In 92, as we're about to discuss, he followed one path. And in 1993, he really went in another direction. And this show is very reflective of that. You've got the acoustic opening. You've got Many Rivers to Cross. You've got the debut of Satan's Jeweled Crown. He really really put a feel on the show that, that was quite different than what came before in 92. It's kind of hard to discuss this show without going too much into 92. But I'm going to go ahead and do it. That whole tour was about Bruce walking a very fine line between giving the fans what they want in terms of E Street classics and then moving on with the new material as well as utilizing the new band for for different things. And he had a hard time walking that line, certainly in the summer of 92 and early fall. But by 93, he had he felt he found the sweet spot. And I think this show shows that in a in a very cool way. As you as you mentioned, Satan's Dual Crown really utilizes the backup singers to to great effect, as just as he does on Many Rivers to Cross. And and of course, you got the beautiful across the borderline. I mean, obviously he did it in '88, and we have a release of that show from Los Angeles of of April '88. But it's here again, and the extra backup background singers really really do the, the song justice it really does and i guess we should just call this all spoiler alert for our next episode <laughs> and Might as well m- maybe as well. not talk about it too much more because and of course we're going to get to the count basie which sets up the 93 european leg and as i think we're we'll probably discuss in the next episode these shows the count basie and the 93 shows in total they they sort of set up what happens with Bruce for the, a number of years after that. So I think let's get into the bulk of the tour and get to all these issues. What do you think? Well, I had a couple more comments about Berlin, but if go you right want ahead. to go ahead and go. Yeah, you, <laughs> g- give, the audience, give the audience your thoughts on Berlin. We'll double back to it next time as well. Okay. Well, I'm just going to talk about the specific recording here, actually. Um, what I found really interesting, and I was listening on, uh, on on earbuds or, you know, the Bose uh, Sport earbuds off listening to the Apple lossless version from my phone. 
just to give people <laughs> what I'm listening to and how I'm listening to it. And I thought the mix was really interesting, just in the fact that Bruce's, not Bruce, Roy's keyboards are mixed very odd. The more piano sound is more in the right channel, whereas when he plays more of an organ sound, that's more in the left channel. Listen to Hungry Heart. All the uh, the main stuff that Roy plays, right channel, but then when he plays what Danny used to play, is in the left channel. It was so so unusual. That is weird. That uh, that almost seems like it's a mixing mistake by Al Scheller. I don't know if it was a mistake, but it it certainly gives it a different different feel. And and another mixing note is just that Shane Fontaine is his guitar is way on the left channel. I mean, he's really he's really squarely squarely left there's he barely goes to the center at all and kind of it can be distracting at times because he does a lot of noodling i think in general these foibles aside the release does really give a nice depiction of the sound of the 92 93 band now some people as we know are not would prefer that there probably be no depictions of the 92 93 band that's that's not reality to the series that they're doing Also, I I think it's important that these shows are released because it's an interesting part of Bruce's career. And again, we'll get to it more next time, because in a way, this is really one of the more fascinating periods for Bruce as he's making this transition. He he went from E Street and then, of course, he arrives here. And then on the next tour, he he goes to Jode. and, And we've also done several episodes on the early 90s. It's just really, really interesting. So I think it'll be good to discuss tonight and also in the next episode. Oh, absolutely. With that in mind, let's move on to our main topic tonight, which is the 1992 portion of the tour. And, and there's really quite a lot here to talk about. Yes, there is. Uh, it releases the two, the two new albums and on March 31st, 1992, 30 years ago today. We're recording this on Thursday, March 31st. And uh, yeah, he was going to he had to go out and tour. So he got to got himself a, a new band, a different band. And <laughs> whether they succeeded in, in, with the tour or not, I think is up to the individual listener. But uh, it's always fun to talk about. Yeah, well, let's let's get into this. And of course, as we discussed in episodes 13 and 14 of our second season, when we looked at these albums, there was a mixed reaction, to say the least, especially to Human Touch and in the spring as they were putting the band together, one wonders how much that was on Bruce's mind. We know from comments he's made publicly, certainly the lack of sales registered with him. <laughs> yes, it did. He, he made some jokes about that at the, um, at the radio broadcast on June 5th about uh, he wanted to get, get up on the top of the charts and he made even more jokes about it when he came back to, to New Jersey. So yeah, it probably did bother him a bit, but it didn't seem to affect his his intensity on on stage at all. I think he um, he came out determined. Uh, he was going to win over audiences with with his new material, with his new band, and he came out ready to roll. He did, and, and he definitely played on this entire tour like he had something to prove. Let's go back to May. They're putting the band together, as we know. Roy was working with him already. And they held a series of rehearsals and Shane Fontaine, Tommy Sims and Zach Alford were the primary band members. Uh, a series of rehearsals ensued and, and we now get to May 6th. 
I'm actually sitting in my apartment at that time. I was living on Mercer Street in in New York, right down the block from the bottom line. And I had a family member who was married to a Sony executive and he, and he called me on an afternoon. And he's like, you didn't hear this from me, but you really should take a walk <laughs> down to the bottom line, which was literally less than three minutes from my apartment by walk. And I said, okay, this is mysterious. And I went down there and Sure enough, there are signs of a show, and and I get wind that Bruce is playing a show at the bottom line. And I was like, holy crap. So that set off a thing. I, I called our buddy Roger, and, and people came down. And there was a small crowd of people outside gathering, and uh, that was quite a day. Oh, when you say people, I assume you meant fans like yourself and Roger yes. and, and a few others. Uh, some other people that we know or, or at, that I actually met for the first time that day that have been friends for 30 years now. The, the sad part of the story for me, they, they were it turned out they were playing a rehearsal show with the core band members that I just mentioned. It was for Sony music executives and the crowd of people gathered out in front. We figured, hoped, prayed they were going to let us in. It, it's just such a funny story because they pulled up the Sony executives. There must have been about 250 or 300 of them in buses that they had brought down from the corporate headquarters. And some of the people outside surreptitiously jumped into line with the people in the buses and walked right into the venue. And, oh, wow. and a bunch of, oh, yeah. And we were too innocent at the time. We were like, OK, we're not going to do that. They're probably going to let us in. Uh, of course, as it became <laughs> a minor. Yeah, no, that was uh, not the right move. And and as it became a minor story in New York, because they wound up not letting us in, Bruce took the stage with the band and, and they played their first ever show together. In addition to the core band members, Bobby King was also there and they ran through a bunch of the Human Touch and Lucky Town songs for the first time. It, it was pretty devastating. I have to say we were outside. There was a security guard. And the old bottom line, you could see the stage from the from the doorway. So they kept leaving the door open so that we could see in. Oh, and we were nice. getting a that glimpse. Nice it. Yeah, it was. And we were getting a glimpse and, and we could hear what was going on. <laughs> the one thing I remember is from afar, I was Shane Fontaine with the long hair. We were like, is that a woman guitar player? <laughs> oh, Lord. But it was it was not. It was it was Shane and and. He, he he happens to be a very cool guy. So, yeah, you know, there's actually a tape of that. There doesn't is. Sound very. It, yeah, it doesn't sound very good. It was it was recorded probably from where you were standing. It must have the, been at the doorway, but uh, there is a tape of that. So you can't say it does one does not exist. And what else was interesting in in terms of recording media is that Patty was actually filming on a little camcorder of some kind, and and then she gave footage to Friday Night Videos. And so they had like one of these, the exclusive, you know, the first glimpse of Bruce live in 1992. And they were very excited to play that, even if it was, they only showed about a minute, maybe, maybe of, of human touch. Well, I got the smallest glimpse you could possibly imagine. <laughs> the next day, I think it was the Daily News, there was actually an article that, because there was a little bit of controversy, there were only about 20 or 25 fans outside and the club was empty. There was 300 people. I think that was about half the capacity and that they didn't let us in. I, later, I understood, you know, he must have been so nervous with that new band and and to have fans come in and perhaps make a scene or be making noise. I get it today as an adult, and I do wish I had gotten in that bus line like some of the other people. 
but uh, it's it's all water under the bridge now. Yeah, live and learn. And then it seems to have served as kind of a rehearsal for Siren at Live, which they play just just three three nights later at the at, at Rockefeller Center in the city. Yeah, this is one of those nights, uh, really, that is seared into my memory because, of course, besides for the small glimpse I'd gotten from the door of the bottom line, this was the first look any of us were getting at what was going on with this new band. And what were your impressions? Because it, I had very mixed impressions after Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I was pumped with with Lucky Town. I, I get it at... He may have oversang it. Maybe later I would I would realize that. But at the time, I was so pumped just to see him play. I was a little bit bewildered, to say the least, by 57 channels. But any doubts I had were uh, were erased with that performance of Living Proof, which I thought was was phenomenal. Yeah, Living Proof was note perfect and by far the best song of the evening. Lucky Town worked for me. It would later become much better especially as it got fleshed out along the tour the well, 57 all, all channels, of the songs got, got better for that very reason oh, that, like, that, that's true know, this was basically the almost the live debut of, of those songs so of course they were gonna get they were gonna get better the version of 57 channels song, we're, we're obviously going to talk about the tour version it, it seemed like even on SNL, and and then it became even, I think, more so with the remix that sort of Steve had created and, and wound up being played live. He seemed to be trying to put a weight on it that really I don't think was justified by the lyrics in the song. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I still, to this day, don't know what he was going for there. It was a time, in a way, it made sense because one of the criticisms, and we're going to get into this when we discussed the tour proper, one of the criticisms was, of course, that it was too similar to E Street. So in a way, it's a little unfair because now we're taking 57 channels, which especially in its tour version was <laughs> definitely nothing like E Street and, and criticizing it. But it, that was really one of the balancing acts of the tour. And I don't know. I mean, it, it'd be interesting. He really, of course, never really talks too much about this period because it was not a successful period for him in comparison to the other portions of his career. And well, as we discussed, well, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, he, nobody seems to ask him about <laughs> about this period. I don't, maybe he's not just reluctant to talk to him. It's just that people are reluctant to actually ask him in, in interviews. Well, let me just state the obvious that if he would like to come on our show, we will be happy <laughs> to ask about this period. Yes, we would. We would go. I think we would go through every every tour and album and say, let's let's. How does he look at this stuff now? Yeah. But, but yeah, that's. But fifty seven channels would be one of our top questions about this era. So the SNL introduced Bruce to the well, Bruce and his new band, I should say, to the public. And then it went quiet for a little while. We knew there was going to be tour dates announced, and and then that happened. Uh, June 5th, there was going to be a radio broadcast. If I recall properly, the tickets were going on sale the next day. Yes, yes, they were. Yeah, yeah all the tickets. Crazy from... morning. <laughs> yes. But yeah, he came out uh, June 5th, the big dress rehearsal for, for the new band, for the, for the tour, and by that point, he had all the all the backup singers and, and added Crystal Taliaferro as well. So this was this was 
as he, as I said, the full dress rehearsal for the uh, for the tour. And, and the set list pretty much reflects what would become the first set of the tour with a few of the encores. Now, he did something on June 5th, which I have to say remains one of the most mystifying things he's ever done to me. Maybe you give us your take. The show in the actual hall, which was Hollywood Center Studios, opened with Better Days. Better Days was not broadcast to the nation even though it was one of the co-singles. Instead, the broadcast to the nation opened up with Born in the USA, which more so now strikes me as so strange considering he's got this new band and he's trying presumably to differentiate from E Street. And, and the first thing the public hears is Born in the USA. And let's face it, they, they don't play it with the power that the E Street band plays it. Now, some people are going to probably say, well, of course, Born in the USA is his biggest hit. He was appealing in that regard. But what did you make of that? Um, yeah, it, mystifying, to, 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 put it, <laughs> to put it nicely. I thought it was actually one of the biggest, biggest mistakes he, he's, he's made at, over the last uh, 30 or so years. I thought that was a huge blunder. Actually, a friend of mine said that the best parts of this show happened before the broadcast started and after the broadcast ended. Because after the broadcast ended, you got 99 and a half won't do. And you got that dancing in the dark, the solo electric version. Right. And all of that. Right. And all of that was. Yeah, he he introduced, as you said, basically the first set plus plus a bit of the encores in this show. But how cool would it have been to hear that dancing in the dark and, and to start off with better days instead of saying he didn't make a step forward by opening the show with Born in the USA. It should have been better day, better days. Sure, he could have played Born in the USA anyway as a second song, but it was it was it was a mistake to to open the broadcast with it. Huge mistake. One of the things that's just so striking about it is that it really seems to underline his total lack of confidence in what was happening at the time because that's the only reason you would go to Born in the USA there is You'd say to yourself, okay, Born in the USA is this massive hit of mine. That's what I'm going to play first to this national audience, even though I'm playing with a new band and the whole theme should be, I'm not doing E Street. And I think that, I don't know if it was the album sales or obviously they had the tickets going on sale the next day. They were worried that perhaps the ticket sales would be light. What's fascinating about it is, as we know, as time goes on, he takes alternate routes from E Street in a much more confident fashion. Even two or three years later, when you would get to the Joe tour and, of course, uh, the Devils and Dust tour and the Seeger Sessions tour, he seemed to be a lot more confident on those tours to take the alternate route, sometimes more successfully than others. But he, he never fell back just on doing the same thing as what he'd been doing on E Street. What I would say to what I would say what you just said is that looking at the set list for basically the first month of the tour over in Europe, Born in the USA was the second song played almost every night until until it hit until it hit London. And so how would you kind of correlate that with I mean, how would you talk about the that placement of the song in and and say France at a show that's not being broadcast? Maybe he was just trying to find that was his set list that he was that he was going to do, whether and whether or not it totally worked or not. 
Right, but why did he leave better days out of the broadcast? Well, that's yeah, that that is a, a big question, and I think it's a and it was a mistake. It was a huge mistake. I, I think, and let's get to the European tour. The tour opens June fifteenth in Stockholm. They went overseas first. I think that perhaps that was done both to <laughs> give a ramp up time, but also because they knew that there would be less pressure there. Yes, totally agree. It was. I mean, hate to they hate to kind of put down Europe, but it was they used them as as rehearsals to before they came to the States and played 11 nights in the great state of New Jersey. Although in all fairness, they would go back to Europe in 93, as we're going to talk about next time. And, and they got some pretty damn good shows. So, and, Oh yeah. And they, they, Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm just saying that this first round, this was the first public shows that he was playing with not the E street band. And he kind of wanted to play more of a safety with more of a safety net in, in Europe. And they're, and Europeans are definitely more open and shall we say encouraging of different aspects of Bruce. But to go back to your question about the placement aboard in the USA, I do think there was an element of it even here at the start of the tour. It goes better days, born in the USA, local hero, Lucky Town. So you're getting three key songs off Lucky Town right at the start of the show. I think the born in the USA sort of was in there to say to people, there's something familiar here for you and to give them a chance to latch on and cheer. And, and, and as we know, and as we're going to discuss, Ultimately, Born in the USA does move from that slot and moves to a much more effective position within the show. I don't know if it's a matter of that he ultimately got his he got more confident to to open the show with a run of new songs and not needing that hit in there. Or if it's just that he decided that Born in the USA was so much more effective in the second set that that was the way it had to be. But the fact that it does change, there is a moment in the tour where I think the performance of the song and the placement of the song, for sure, is, is much better. Oh, absolutely. I think once he he established it uh, right before Light of Day or right before Real World, as you said, uh, I think he finally started doing that uh, when he hit when he hit London at the last the last five dates of the European tour. I mean, that worked spectacularly, especially after Souls of the Departed. Souls into USA. I I thought that was an inspired combination that just was yeah. nailed everything, nailed the themes of of souls, and it nailed the theme of Born in the USA. Now, speaking of major hits and war horses, one of the things, of course, we should point out is that June fifteenth in Stockholm, when the tour opens, Born to Run is not played. It's the first show <laughs> ever where Born to Run is not played, and then for a number of nights. I guess it's the first three shows of the tour. It's not played. And then he gets to Milan. There's a second night in Milan. He actually tour premieres a number of songs, all from the, the classic era, Dabound Train, Tougher Than the Rest, Badlands, one of the biggest war horses. And then at the end of the night, in response to the crowd, Born to Run is played. Yeah, it was my understanding that the Italians just went freaking nuts. <laughs> like they didn't feel it was totally right without without that one in the set and he, he wasn't he obviously he wasn't going to play it he was he was trying to make some differences from what he had done with the E Street band and but that was one he just he just couldn't get away from it was it was really sort of a high wire act that, and you got to feel from now he has stated as we discussed in our episodes on the record one of the reasons why he released both records at the same time was to have enough new material to tour. And in his defense, he did play a ton of that material. Even in, in these shows, the Leap of Faith, Man's Job, Roll the Dice, 
segment to end the first set, which was done every night of the tour and was very effective. Living Proof every night was great. If I Should Fall Behind was really good. And then there were some of the songs that maybe didn't work as well, which 57 channels we've already discussed. Uh, which he played every night, though. Which he did play every night. Real World, which was... That also got better as the tour went along, as we discussed in the Boston archive release. But Real World it never was anywhere near as effective as it was in the in the piano version and as we know he is he has admitted that publicly it did not but at the same time i thought i like what he was trying to do with it with the gospel singers and trying to make it real make it bigger and make it more of a reaffirming anthem reaffirming gospel song uh than the plaintive piano version i mean plaintive i mean like he was he was searching for something when he when he played it at the Christic shows, and he had found it by the time they they hit the stage in '92. And I thought I thought it worked really well. I will say he had probably bloated it out a little bit too much. It should have been more more succinct, but that's that's something Bruce has had a problem with for the last 20 years as well. But uh, you know, I'm not a. I love the real world performance on, on this tour. Now, and I'm looking at the Milan set list, even on a night where he brought back several war horses, 13 new songs in the set from Human Touch and Lucky Town. So in a way, he 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 was living up to the mission, even though these other songs from the classic era were in there. I think, and let's talk about this conceptually. How did you feel about the show itself? Did it feel different enough to you? Now, obviously, you didn't see it in Europe, nor did I. We would see it at the Meadowlands for the first time, but did it feel to you like different enough from East street? What was your take on what was going on? Well, I wasn't thinking that critically at the time in terms of an analysis. I was just happy to have them on tour. I mean, I was excited to call the, the bot, the backstreet's boss hotline every, every morning before I went to work to get, to get the set list from the show before. So I was just, just excited to, to hear the, hear the set list each 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 morning and but i i think it was different enough looking back on it now he came out like you said half the show was was totally totally new and it had it had been four years four and a half years since he toured with the east long time which was yeah but that's i mean that and that's a long time in in entertainment as, as you know and I think people were just happy to have him back for the most part. I don't think anybody was saying, well, this was too much like Tunnel or too much like USA. I don't I don't think those thoughts really ever crossed anybody's mind. Well, and you do make a good point because some people may not remember 1988 to 1992. Well, there was the initial makings of the Internet in the in the early 90s, but it was not like today. Bruce has not played a show with the E Street Band now, unfortunately, in five years. But because of the internet, because of the pictures, because of he, he's done streaming appearances during the pandemic, it's like he has not gone away. He's done the From My Home to Yours on, on Sirius. If you think back to well, this I mean, tour. He, he, I mean, he did. Well, I mean, it's a huge difference. I mean, he he did Broadway. He's released. He, he's literally released something every year, yeah. you know, since since 19, since 18. So you're right. He has he has not gone away at all. Which is which is fine, which is fine, fine by me. But it was so different in in between in eighty nine to ninety one, you know. 
the man was, except for the two nights at the Christic, and, and this was pre-internet, so those shows happened. It's not like you went on YouTube the next day to see performances from, <laughs> from the Christic. The man was literally gone. I mean, that that's the thing. The, the, you know, we've done an episode uh, about this as well. The man was gone. So I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, we should talk about Wembley because there are some cool shows in there. But when we get to that first night at the Meadowlands, I, I didn't sleep the night before. I mean, you know, I was I was I was so young and I was and I had great seats for that first night at the Meadowlands. And, and I was just so excited at the thought of being there. So. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, it, you know, nobody <laughs> 30 years ago, I didn't think I was going to be doing something called a podcast talking about these shows. <laughs> yeah, the the world's changed quite a bit. And I think even Bruce knows now that he can't just disappear like like he did at that time. And, and it sounds like he did a lot of a lot of personal work during that time. So he, he didn't have to have to totally disappear again. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz from Numb But The Brave, and I want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that puts your music into online stores and streaming services like Spotify. You keep 100% of your royalties. The DistroKid app is packed with features. You can check your streaming stats from Apple and Spotify, upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. Your music will stream at the highest quality so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great too. So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. So let's talk about the five shows at Wembley. This was the first big stand of the tour. And the first night you've got With Every Wish in the set, which unfortunately has not been played again since its last performance on July 23rd, 1992 would have been perfect with Kurt Rahm on the stage oh, yeah. uh, in either 2009 or 2012. But it, you, you did. And listening to these shows, Crystal Cat has put out, uh, which of the shows that Crystal Cat put out? I think it was July 12th. And then it had the songs from the other nights, right? Yes. He was good with, uh, no, it wasn't the 12th. It was, the, I think it was going to be the 10th here. To 10th. Yeah, Ju- July 10th was the Wembley night release from Crystal Cat. 
These shows were a good listen, and thanks to Mr. Cat for putting that one out. Now, I, I think we started to see the strength of the new material here as the band got their feet under them. And that's why it's still a shame something like With Every Wish has vanished post-1992. That one in particular, and you hear it here on the recording, I remember it really worked. Well, one thing we did kind of skip over before the going to Wembley is that he really was trying to find the set, especially in the, especially the second set. He was having trouble. I mean, yes. he had Real Man and Thunder Road before Light of Day. I mean, how does that work in, in anywhere? But I think by the time he hit Wembley, he had that sequence of songs where it was, you know, with every wish, Souls of the Departed, Born in the USA, Real World, Light of Not Day. Effective. And I, and that, yeah. Yeah, and that, and that was, as you said, very effective. It worked really well, and I think that with that, he he found he found the set, and from then from that point on, that I mean that was almost the set for the rest of the year. Yes, I mean we'll talk about New Jersey and just in terms of all the old stuff coming in and out, but he really did find he found the show at that point. He did, and and the final night in Wembley, seven thirteen. He introduced Prove It All Night to the set. That opened the second half of the show. That would become a regular, uh, well, it was a semi-regular, switching off very often with Gloria's Eyes for for the rest of the year. And they really had it going. I mean, if you're going to sit there and compare the shows to E Street, yes, especially now, 30 years later, I don't think they compare favorably to the E Street band. That's just a fair assessment. But in the moment, which is when these concerts took place, they were very enjoyable. And that's where we find ourselves as you get to July 23rd, 1992. Now, were you in the building that night? I was. I, 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 I was hoarse before before he even took the stage. Uh, <laughs> you, the, you couldn't sleep. And I, and I was screaming, screaming my 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 head off at like eight o'clock, like 10 minutes before he even hit the stage. <laughs> so I was a little excited that day, too. There was a buzz, a nervous buzz in the building that night. It was it was really unique. And and he obviously felt it. I forget who told us someone that we know who had either been backstage or heard from someone backstage said that, that like it was people who have seen him. It was probably the most nervous he's ever been walking out onto a stage. He really didn't know what reception he was going to get. He was coming home. There had been this long break. The band had been fired and. He had moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> right. And and the the thing here is, and we've talked about this, I think, when the, the July 25th show came out. To me, this is a fascinating potential archive release because there was something, and, and it's not like it was a very good show. And nobody's going to sit here and say it, it's an arch, it should be an archive release because it's some kind of legendary show, but it's the circumstances the show took place yes. in. And when he yes. took the stage that night, and I think he felt the roar of that crowd. It was something clicked in him, and it was a really, really good night. It must have been very reassuring to him when he came on that stage and counted into better days. As you said, the roar of the crowd was totally there. He must have just felt, must have been so relieved to, to, to hear that and to feel that and to, to feel the welcoming. I mean, the banner said, welcome home, Bruce, right, on the on the on the Meadowlands arena and it was a welcoming and I, and I can't imagine how relieved he, he must've been. And the show, it opened with three new songs, which the crowd received extremely well. And, and then he went into the solo electric dancing in the dark, which in that moment, 
I think he even said, uh, I haven't listened to the show in a while, but he did say something. He did mention him moving to LA and he was like, get it out now. And he, it's like the crowd <laughs> should yell at him and stuff. And the version of dancing, and that was such a highly effective version. Another reason why this would be a good archive. We need that solo electric dancing yes, in the dark. Do. Yes, we do. We need that. And we need with every wish. It was, it we was need, so revealing. We need those too. The performance of dancing was so revealing if you talk about distinguishing from E Street, this was one of the songs where he he probably did it best, if not the best, mm -hmm. because he really stripped it down and took it to its essence. And it really sort of poured his heart out into that song. And yeah, the, it, it, it's great. Yeah, the, the darkness of the lyrics, he always kind of got lost when it was being done in an arena and he was pulling up a girl on stage every time. But... Without all that, when it's just him and the electric guitar and he's hitting it, you singing the lyrics, you, you, you feel it more. You, you know exactly what, what he was talking about when, when he wrote the song in early 84. And yeah, that should be heard by more people. And I, I'm not even sure if there's a really good audience recording of, of that performance or of that song anywhere except for maybe Wembley Night. But yeah, it needs to be included, maybe not from this show, but somewhere from, from that year. And we're not going to go through every show individually. Now, how many of these did you see? Only two. <laughs> I, of course, uh, uh, along with your wife, uh, saw all 11. I had not yet met your wife, though, at this point. This was days before I would meet her. But uh, I, that was a crazy summer. I was like, we, we were able to get tickets. Uh, my buddy Roger hooked me up for a couple of nights. I was hooked up by the guy at Columbia, who I had mentioned had told me about the Bottom Line show. Somehow I made it into all 11 nights. It seems like a fever dream now. And <laughs> it was just so much fun, you know, and 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 I was so young. And it, certainly this was and the first was time I was seeing that kind of multiple shows. And Bruce did really take every night as a way, I think, to give the fans a treat. Now, one <laughs> of the things that's going to become debated is most of those treats were from the classic era we're going to discuss an article that rock critic Robert Hilburn of the LA Times, one of the deans of rock criticism, writes after this stand is over, where it, he addresses this very issue. But there was there there was just every night we got there, the, the shows, yes, a lot of the songs were the same, but there was nuggets, as we like to call them, in every show and, and, and the July 25th archive release, which we've already talked about, we won't go over again. I mean, that's a perfect example. There were quite a number of them that, that night, including some might say, thankfully, the last ever performance of Real Man. <laughs> well, I think that I think that's OK, even if it worked just perfectly thematically at that at that show. Look, it was a lot of fun and it was just fun in general to be there every night and, and to have the variety of material that was being played. And sometimes that's got to be enough, you know, that you're just there and having fun. And, and certainly that's where I was at that point in my life at the, at the age of what was I? I was 24. <laughs> well, yeah, I was I was thinking between um, in terms of, of the fandom, I think a lot of people who are near our age, who were in their early 20s in 92, they had spent the last four years when, when Bruce was hibernating, kind of getting into Bruce, discovering bootlegs. And they had maybe they had seen shows on Tunnel. Maybe they had seen a show on, on the USA tour. But when Bruce came back for, for 92, people like people went nuts. 
And we were just, as you said, just so happy to be there. And, you know, we didn't have the the means, the opportunity to travel around much in the 80s. So now, now we in college, out of college and had some freedom, had some money. And we, we saw a lot of shows and yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it's a matter of perspective because of course, today I, I probably feel differently about these shows, but you're only young once as <laughs> it is so cliche. <laughs> it's it's it seems hard to believe as we talk about it 30 years later, but <laughs> it is the truth. And these shows, I will talk about the other ones, the the, the 726 show, the 728 show. They were all good. The, the July 30th show was a personal favorite of mine. That was the night the beach ball wound up on stage and, and he played Sandy impromptu and uh, I, actually, now that I think of it, that was the first time we learned that the teleprompter was there. <laughs> well, how did you uh, how did you figure that one out? If I recall properly, he said it. He said something like put the words up or something. And people behind the stage, much as they can today, people could see the teleprompter scrolling in front of him. So it, it was not really a secret at that point. It was just the first time he was using it. And and I think it did have a positive impact. You know, this has been a debate over the years because he looks down and it, it can be a little distracting if you really pay attention to the fact that he is looking down. But I think, and correct me if you disagree, over the the last 30 years, starting with these shows in 1992, we've gotten a number of songs that have been played on specific nights that probably could not have been played if the teleprompter wasn't there. Oh, not not at all. I mean, there's hundreds of songs that that he could play at any given time but a lot of it is he's relying on that prompter for for the words i mean could he have played frankie and gothenburg you know in 2012 without the without the prompter i i doubt it honestly uh, another song that made an appearance that night on july 30th was all the way home that was really sweet which of course had been released by Southside on on the better days record and the July 31st show, the same thing. There were, there were quite a number of interesting selections in that show. The, the biggest one being the, the only ever band performance of Cross My Heart, which I, I thought worked beautifully well. And then, of course, in true Bruce fashion, never appeared again, at least not with the band. <laughs> yeah, that was that was what I was looking forward to hearing on the tour and pretty, pretty kind of disappointed at the time that that he didn't pull it out more. But. That's <laughs> it's only a minor complaint considering how much he did play from those two, those two albums. Now, and it is important to point out on July 31st, where there was quite a number of songs that came into the set. In addition to Cross My Heart, Pony Boy was played. That was the first time ever. But also there was quite a number of older songs coming in. I'm on Fire, Atlantic City, Spirit in the Night. And, and this is really the theme of these Meadowland shows where he did rely on E Street classics to, I think, sort of draw in the crowd. At the time, of course, again, I was 24 years old. I was thrilled to be seeing Spirit in the Night. Uh, do you recall what 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 you thought about all that? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I remember being just thrilled, just excited that, oh, in a stretch of seven songs, six of them were were old and only one new song. And and that's at the time, that's what I wanted to hear. I was excited about when he played Atlantic City or Spirit in the Night or all the way home and darkness and you know just badlands trap the whole the whole bit but i've done a done a full 180 on that as i've gotten older and looked back on it and and obviously i think been spoiled by the number of of e street tours that we've had there's that tour should have been should have focused on the on the new material and 
but at the time, yeah, I mean, prove it all night was freaking awesome, wasn't it? Well, and it, and it is <laughs> ironic because I, to this day, I think the thir- July 31st show was probably my favorite of the 11. And again, you did get some newer material in there that was only played that night or, or very rarely played after that night. But you did also get all these older songs. And, and it, it was, I recall, and it was a little seductive because, you know, and, and I didn't think in the sort of critical sense back when I was 24, like we were talking about and we do a podcast today. No, so it, it, yeah, it's it's just interesting to look back and, and to think about these things. And that's really how the rest of the Meadowland stand played out on August 4th, of course. Well, August 4th is a famous night for all of us. <laughs> this podcast would not exist, I don't think, without August 4th, 1992, because Bruce came out that night. He opened with Redheaded Woman. I turned around. There was tour debut. Yeah, tour debut. There was a woman standing behind me. The first time it had been played since the Christic. And there was a woman standing behind me writing down the set list. And I turned to her and I said, the name of the song is Redheaded Woman. And she said, I know. (laughs) And the name of that person, that woman was Claudine. And she and I struck up what has been a lifelong friendship since that night. And of course, a little later on, she would meet you. And and it truly, there would be no podcast if that conversation had not taken place. Well, not just no podcast, but I don't think I'd be I'd be married to her right now if you hadn't done that. That's, that's actually mean, true. That seems bigger than the podcast. Yes, it does. I think the fact that uh, you guys became friends and I think you encouraged her to join the the AOL Springsteen board uh, not too long thereafter or whenever whenever it came whenever that came about. And that was and that was how I met her. So. Without you in there pushing her, pushing her to the AOL board, I yeah, I don't think I'd be married to her right now. Well, it's like we said a few weeks ago. I mean, just if you think about the enormity, not just us and all the people out there who've met because of Bruce, it's it, it's really something. So, but that all started that night, and and this stand is is that's one of the reasons why in my mind it's obviously so important to me. And 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 the rest of the shows were were really good. Uh, the I forget which, which at the end which show did you see? I saw August seventh, which that was, that was a really good show. That was a phenomenal show. Um, I didn't have good tickets at all, good seats at all. But uh, and I drove up with my mother <laughs> of all people, and but it was I was so happy to be there. I mean, that version of Racing in the Street. No, it doesn't hold up, but at the time I thought it was just just amazing. And and then of course you had the solo acoustic for you, and then growing up as well, and and of course all the way home with Southside Johnny. That, yeah, that was that was sweet. Yeah, that was amazing. And and it doesn't doesn't hurt that that was actually one of the better recordings to come out of that of that stand. Uh, the taper had obviously had great seats that he didn't have for <laughs> other shows, so doesn't hurt that uh, there's that amazing recording of it. Now, the final night, the 11th night, and it, it for me, it felt like I'd been living there for a month. Uh, <laughs> I guess I practically had been. The tenth, uh, the 11th night on the 10th, really, I think this is probably where he goes a little too far with the E Street material. And I don't know which nights that the Hilburn article is really addressing but I can certainly see that it might have been this night because the, the show, all the shows had basically been opening with 
Better Days, Once You Open with Local Hero, Redheaded Woman opened the show, as we noted. But nothing older was opening these shows. And then the 11th night started with Sherry Darling, which I think did, it certainly excited the crowd. But I, I do think it altered the feel of going from the fact that the shows were opening with new material and now was opening with an E Street song. Well, but at the same time, it was an acoustic version. So it yes. wasn't like he was coming out and then he was doing the doing just the same version or arrangement he was doing in, in 80, 81 and 84 in that building. So that was a situation where I think it was worthy that doing an acoustic arrangement with, with just him and Roy. I think that, that that worked well, whereas the full band versions or, or performances of Sandy and Rosalita yeah, well, that's obviously, uh, and let's talk about it. That was, in many of the ways, uh, funny enough, we were back seven years later, the final night at the Meadowlands, where also I think you and I both feel that the performance of Rosalita the last night in 99 was sort of pandering, ri- a rare occurrence mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. It certainly had that feel on this evening. And and yeah. even in m- my younger self, I mean, I was excited to see it. Uh, because of course it was Rosalita, but something felt a, a little off about it. it. It was, and and again, what was the mission of the tour? I think for Bruce and it, here on this eleventh night, I think whatever the mission started, he sort of got away from it. And as we're going to talk about in, in a little while, at some point he did course correct. Right. Yeah. I think at this one. This performance of, of performances of Sandy and Rosie, it was the final night send off. Thank you to the to the Jersey fans. And but yeah. And then I remember at the time hearing or reading in Backstreet's magazine about the giving the fans what they want argument. And I think that's what you had here. He they wanted to hear the, the early 70s stuff. So here here's Sandy. Here's Rosie. And I guess Rosie never got played again on the tour. Right. No. And but I think Sandy did. It came out a couple of times later in August. But of course, to me, it's the Sandy should have been played acoustic, just like for you and growing up in, in spirit. Well, and Sandy had been played acoustic, as we mentioned on July 30th. Now, I think it was so he was on the electric guitar, if I remember correctly. But it was it, it was not a full band version. I think it was just him and Roy. Right. It's interesting because we know later on when Bruce does the side projects without the E Street Band. He really committed to them. And the the question here is, at least in August, because he was in Jersey and, and I think he was nervous, as we discussed, about the fan reaction, the records hadn't performed all that well. Did he sort of give in in a way that he certainly would never do on any of the non-E Street tours that followed, whether it was Jode or Devils and Dust and, 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 and the Seeger Sessions? He never fell back into this trap. And as I think we know, he's he's never going to talk about this stuff. But it, it would be interesting to know what was going through his mind as he was picking the songs for the stand. <laughs> I got I got a bunch of thoughts there. Um, well, the first thing is that the, with the big challenges of this tour and the albums in, in and of themselves is just that they sound they're they're too rocking. There was he it wasn't a departure enough for him to be able to say, okay, I'm not gonna play the East the E Street material. Maybe I'm repeating what we've already said, but 
And so later on, when he when he does Jode and when he does Doubles and Dust, and especially Seeger, those are so far so far away from E Street that the the thought of doing say a full band Sandy with the Seeger sessions that that's just not happening. And and he's definitely not doing Born to Run with them. And so it was it was just too easy for him to say, okay, I'm gonna let's let's do Rosie. We're a rock band. I got a rockin' band behind me. Let's just do Rosie. Let's do Born to Run. Let's do working on the highway, a hungry heart, all the rest of them. It was just too easy to do that. And and it was easy to fall into that trap. But things that didn't things change, right? Yeah, I guess so. And, and let's talk about the rest of the first leg, which leads into the change. There's not too much. The, the show's pretty much followed the path of the Meadowlands. I, you and I were both in at the Cap Center, right? Yeah, outside D.C. Yeah, not too much. They, they were standard shows for the time period. Not too much to say about that. Uh, the, the Probably the biggest thing to note is the first night in Philly, Soul Driver premiered. And I, and I think we talked pretty extensively about Soul Driver when we reviewed the Boston 92 archive. Mm-hmm. And the shows were solid. But let's talk about how the tour now starts to morph. Because on August 16th, and we don't know, Bruce has never commented on this, right? On what? On the Hilburn article. Not publicly. Uh, but to set Not it up, on, on August 16th, Robert Hilburn, who had written a book about Bruce in the 80s and, as I said, was one of the deans of rock criticism, still is to this day, writes an article with the headline in the L.A. Times, Reborn in New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen keeps the hometown fans happy with the old songs, but it's a dangerous game. And basically writes an article where he says all the songs that we were just talking about, the Rosalitas and the Sandys, that Bruce should be getting away from that and he should commit to his new material. And it's a very interesting article. You can actually still find it on the web if you if you Google it. But I mean, what do you think about this, Flynn? I mean, did it, there's been a lot of speculation that it did impact Bruce's thinking on the tour. Whether it was a direct result or not, but from from when he when the tour resumed in Los Angeles and in the later part of of September, all the old stuff was gone, or at least the majority of the old stuff in the vein. I mean, the the vast majority. You're correct. Right of the of the East Street material that he would he he had played in New Jersey and 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 Worcester and even D.C. They were gone. There was. And in their place was you got the big money every night. You got glorious eyes every night or almost every night. Soul Driver came in, as you said. Real World was played almost every night. So there was a, 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 notice, a notable transition from what he had been doing that summer to, to how the sets progressed that fall. And we know that Bruce certainly must have been aware of this article, again, because Hilburn was an important figure for him. I, I think, I mean, when Hilburn w- was one of his biggest backers from the early going, right? I believe so. Yeah. And he and he interviewed him for the, for the book. Yeah. So, so. A, a, and and Bruce at the time, I think, was susceptible, as we know he was upset about the records being not as successful as he would have hoped, I think. And here's this guy he respects who writes a, a compelling article it seems too much to be a coincidence because the first leg ends. Now the article had come out uh, about probably about 10 days, to two weeks before the, the leg ended. And then they take this break. And when he comes back, as you note, I mean, the, the set is completely overhauled. 
Well, I wouldn't say completely overhauled. I, w- I would I would say more focused. It was more focused with the new material, with the, with the excluding a lot of the classics that had been performed, as I said, in New Jersey. Uh, Badlands and, and Trap seem to stick around a little bit. Well, but if you if you look at the first night at in L.A., there is a lot more new material in there than we got <laughs> the Meadowlands. As you pointed out, the Big Muddy is played. Glorious right. Eyes opens the second set. A Glorious yeah, Eyes, if I recall, was played once in 11 nights at the Meadowlands. Right. And it was at ditto for real world. Yeah. And one of the things I keep meaning to I kept meaning to mention about the Meadowlands, stand, it was at 11 shows, but he didn't do human touch. At all of them. And you would have thought that a song that was basically top 10 or at least top 20 just a couple months earlier would have been done every night. But it wasn't. But I believe starting in September 24th in Los Angeles, it was every night through the end of the actually through the end of the tour. Right. Through, yeah. through well, the end of, of 93 the, tour. A lot of these songs were played much more often than they were in that August time frame. Now, and of course, some people are going, wait, you're skipping over Unplugged, uh, which we should also talk about. I, I, we wanted to make sure we got the Hilburn article in first. At the same time, now Bruce is in Los Angeles. They're supposed to be doing MTV Unplugged, at, which was going to be really cool because, of course, at the time, Unplugged was huge. Yes. And then we get word that... <laughs> And, and I think, again, this shows a little bit about where his head was and perhaps lacking in a little bit of confidence. He bails on the unplugged. And, and I guess they probably had a contract in place. He plays it as a full band show. And then, they, they, as everyone knows, it, it was called Plugged with the uncrossed out. And, <laughs> yes. and just really strange, in all honesty. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Well, actually, I don't think it's that unrelated to, to the set list transition that we were just talking about. Well, you're probably right. If only for the fact that he played all 10 songs from Lucky Town at this show, and, and that had to happen before and didn't happen again. And and Big Muddy's in there. I mean, Soul, Soul Driver's in there. I Wish I Were Blind. Those were hardly ever played over the over the previous summer. So I think it, his thinking was already in that direction. But even with with all of that, and I think that's a great point, the decision to bail on Unplugged, it seems to me... And, and we know Bruce, one of the things about him is he's such a confident performer and he owns that stage. And, and you know he always is feeling it. And you get the sense here in this period in 1992, maybe he wasn't feeling it as much. Uh, you know, talking about what we were talking about with the Meadowlands and I don't want to necessarily use the word pandering again, but, <laughs> you know, going to those songs to make sure that the audience is with you. And then you're going to do plugged. And at the time there were stories that they were working on some cool arrangements of stuff. We'll never know the full reality of that because of course it didn't happen. And then he bails and and gives them 
a standard full band performance, it's really interesting because it's unlike, I think, any period in Bruce's career that that you and I have witnessed. I, I don't know if people went back to the very early 70s if he exhibited the same level of confidence because he was such a young performer. But since you and I have been in the picture, this is a man who is supremely confident. And I don't know, am I wrong? Does it feel like that maybe wasn't where his head was at this particular moment in time? Well, it's kind of weird to say that we're, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and just go with the fact that I think he even said it himself and that he was just lazy and he didn't and he really didn't come up with maybe a, enough arrangements to, to, to do a full show. And I was always curious as to how he was going to transform some of that stuff in, into acoustic arrangements anyway. I, I, I couldn't imagine Local Hero and Lucky Town and 57 Channels. Well. Actually, 57 channels, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that was done acoustic at the, at the acoustic. acoustic, obviously. And as we know, over the ensuing years, I mean, he basically reinvents pretty much every song acoustically on <laughs> one of the acoustic tours. I, maybe you're right. Maybe he just didn't give it enough time and he didn't he wasn't ready. I mean, that's also possible. I think uh, he didn't. He was what magazine interview was that uh, um, musician? Do you, you remember the musician interview? I, I think so. I, I, we'd have to look it back up. I, I can't say 100% for sure off the top of my head. Because uh, I remember that being a really good really good interview, a really good piece. Uh, the guy f was able to follow, follow him around a bit. And I think in that article that uh, was mentioned that the MTV executives went ballistic when, when they found out that Bruce was not going to do Unplugged. Unplugged. And that, and I think Bruce was actually said, "Yeah, we just, I just, just couldn't come up with enough arrangements." Uh, maybe uh, I'm misquoting there, but I can, I guess I can, I should look that up. But it was a very fascinating piece. Oh, and and that's also where we got that that first story about first time we heard about the born in the USA and Pittsburgh debacle where where Roy oh and yes were yes playing of course now I remember. yeah <laughs> as Bruce was counting into the to the opening Born in the USA at a show in Pittsburgh in August of, of 85. With this new set in mind, what would you say now at the age of 24, I probably would have been like, oh, I'm missing some of the older stuff. Although I do remember when he made the set list change, it was very exciting because much more, I was always a fan of Lucky Town, much more of the Lucky Town material was, was being played regularly. Soul Driver was in the set, which we had been waiting for. Do you think that this is a more effective set list than what was being done in Jersey? Effective? I would say yes. I think a lot of fans probably did walk out disappointed that they that it wasn't the E Street band, that it, they didn't get Thunder Road, they didn't get Promised Land, or Thunder Road with the band. They didn't they didn't get Promised Land. But there was certainly enough of the old stuff in the encores to to meet their to meet their demands and and again, I think the focus on the new material was what, what, what was definitely a positive. Uh, I think it was it's been in the detriment to to that band, to that tour that everybody compares Born to Run, their performance of Born to Run with 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 the E Street version. That's just totally unfair to them, and and you're just going to be disappointed anyway. Yeah, in retrospect, really, this tour would have been stronger had he left out specifically Born to Run. And I could also maybe make the same argument for Badlands. The, and, and that is something, of course, as we know, in the later tours, Born to Run was not played at all on the Joe tour. It was played once on the Devils and Dust tour. 
And of course, it wasn't played on the Seeger sessions. So he later arrives at a place where he says, I can leave Born to Run Out, but that was not here yet. No, but those it was those Italian fans. They 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 chanted for it over that the two shows worth before he finally played it. And I guess he figured he had no choice. I think he did. I think he wanted to leave it behind. He he started the tour with that with that intention, and it just didn't quite work out that way. The uh, given the people what they want was, or the people were really vocal in what they wanted, and. That's why some of these recordings, at least in terms of the E Street stuff, do not hold up for me uh, 30 years later. Did you see any shows during the fall leg? I did. I saw two. I saw Toronto and Syracuse. Syracuse actually had, I was my first time see, sitting on the floor and I got close enough to the stage during working on the highway for, uh, for Gia to to toss me her the hat she was wearing which of course would just give it to her by somebody else in, in on the floor so but that was uh, that was a lot of fun nice syracuse was right after the two coliseum yep. shows which i attended with your wife yep. the second coliseum show well it was a billy joel guest appearance on glory days but most significantly and sort of out of nowhere never to be heard from again there was a new version of cross my heart an acoustic version I didn't think it worked as well as the band version, but it was very sweet. And that too just disappeared. And and now it's 30 years later and has never been played again. Yeah, I was kind of hoping in some way and, and not without merit, not without some substance that it was going to come out on the Devils and Dust tour. But I think it was even sound checked once or twice, but obviously didn't happen. It would be cool, especially on the acoustic tours to hear them in, in in slightly different arrangements. Of course, he has done a couple of them. Uh, Soul Driver was done on the pump organ, right? Yes, it was. Yes, yeah, it was. That's cool. So was Souls, wasn't it? Or am I misremembering here? <laughs> that I don't remember. There were so many songs played on that tour. Uh, you know, I, don't think, course, I don't think and, it was. And of course, we know the version of Real World <laughs> totally revitalized in 2005. So... As the year went on, they wound up. Well, I saw the show. I again, you, my, I was with your wife, and uh, we went down. I remember very clearly because it was after my law school finals, and we went down and we saw the show in Philly on December eighth, nineteen ninety two, and it was a good show. I, I think it definitely had a different feel than the summer. That's for sure. The, the well, certainly there was no expectation that you were going to get the sort of Eastery classics that he was mixing in every night, one here, one there, like the racing the street we talked about. That that was all long gone by this point. But it was a very, very tight show and 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 very entertaining. You know, I think one of the things when people knock the 92-93 band, and as you were just saying, some of it is due to the comparisons of the East Street material. You've got to understand in the building, these were very high energy, fun shows, and, mm -hmm. and you can't take anything away from that. As I said earlier, Bruce brought it. Um, I thought he his energy on this tour was as high, probably higher than almost every other tour with the with the East Street Band. I just maybe he felt he had to bring it more. I mean, he didn't have he didn't have any Clarence solos. He didn't have any Steve or, or Neil solos. There was no Mighty Max. You know, he he had to do it. He had to he had to carry that carry that weight that of some of the expect expectations of that came with the E Street Band and and I thought it made for a better maybe not a better show but it's, he certainly didn't make up for it in that respect and 
And then his guitar playing, it was the most guitar he had yeah. played since 78. You make a very key point. And, and I think even going back to what I was saying about what was he lacking in confidence to the extent that that might've been the case, it was an artistic thing where he wasn't ready to take the step out of E street and, and perhaps challenge the audience as he, he was clearly ready to do <laughs> a couple of years later when he embarked on the Joe tour, because no audience has ever been challenged more than that. Uh, <laughs> but here, the one thing you notice uh, his performance he was working his ass off during these shows and, and the guitar playing and, and the singing and the interaction with the audience. He knew he didn't have the E Street Band behind him and he had to be the entire connection because there was really no one behind him anywhere near his level in terms of stature with the audience like a Clarence was or even Steve and, and Max and, and these are are beloved band members by the audience and he didn't have that behind him in 92, 93 except for Roy. Right. And Roy Roy carried a lot. I remember him yeah, getting you know during the band intros they gave him his own little separate spotlight and and allowed the the audience to to shower him with applause for a few extra seconds. And and he brought it too. Roy he was the backbone of the sound of of that tour in terms of all the other musicians playing off of him. He was he was the band leader or he was the musical director and maybe not in, in name, but certainly in in stature and what they were doing, what they needed to do. And his sound on that tour, Roy's sound, of course, because he wasn't playing the piano, it, it was quite different. And, and it it's interesting listening to these archive releases because they they certainly do have a different sound than you're used to with the E Street Band. I, I think Bruce was trying to push in a new direction. And here in 1992, and we'll get to the end of this leg, as they arrive in Lexington, do we think that this tour was the 92 portion? We'll discuss 93 separately next time. The 92 portion, would you say that this was uh, a success for him that's a very valid question um i don't know if it was i i 92 I, he, he he walked a very fine line he does there was some easy traps for him to fall into and he didn't always avoid them whereas i think some of that stuff he was able to overcome in in, in the next year i agree with you and, I, and i'm looking forward to discussing that next time there's a lot of meaty stuff in an artistic sense to discuss where he, he goes in in 1993 and and how it sets up the future uh, now before we part tonight there was one more performance and this is worth mentioning because it's an important performance for me and for your wife as you know when i first met your wife it, she didn't go to the pony. She didn't go down to the shore that much and on december 27 1992 southside was playing the pony I said to Claudine, we got to go down. This is going to be great if Bruce shows up or not. And and sure enough, Bruce did show up. Bon Jovi was there as well. It was, even though it was a cold night in December, the pony inside was scorching hot. <laughs> and and Claudine saw Bruce at the pony from about two feet away for the for the first time ever. And I I, I, I remember when he came on stage and she was there, <laughs> That at, much like it was for all of us, that first exposure to Bruce in that sort of environment is is a moment. 
Yes, yes, and that bizarre-looking yellow shirt, if I remember. I actually have some pictures still of that. Now, I actually, I, I want to go back a little bit, and I'm go sorry ahead. to sorry to do this, but yeah. um, you, I thought you were going there actually, um, like the sound of the band with, the, oh yeah, with with the heavy heavy on the keyboards. It was almost like this tour was uh, two years too late, whereas in in, in 1990, all the synths and the high keyboards would have been perfectly fit perfectly in in the pop pop stratosphere and the pop culture, and but it by 1992, after grunge had taken over and swept across the the rock landscape, it Bruce's music almost sounded dated at this point. And yeah, this music was is very of that time. And I don't want to use the phrase dated, but yeah, that's it. Kind of sounds dated at this point, and it just doesn't sound timeless. Well, for me, it's quite a dichotomy because, of course, this is right around the time that Ten comes out, and I've been a Pearl Jam fan since pretty much the beginning and it is true you if you listen to 10 and you listen to the shows that they were playing at the time who's the pearl jam yeah pearl jam yeah okay there was such a rawness that by this point that bruce had lost and and there was in many ways you you would use the word polished is that what correct here uh yeah i guess so i guess so just just so heavy on on the yeah the polished keyboards that that synth sound that that roy was was pumping out he must have known i mean certainly by the time they put this band together he knew where the industry was going i guess in that he he didn't really care too much about it he he saw what he wanted to do and that's what makes the whole conversation so fascinating in the in the sense of was he successful and and with the with the falling into some of the traps that you mentioned, did he did he get what he wanted out of 1992? And and we can't answer that question. I, I guess it, it'll remain unanswered. <laughs> but my my guess is, especially considering what he does in 1993, I mean that's where we're going to pick up next time. I I think the answer must be no, right? Because I, if if he if he felt that this was where he wanted to be, why did he change the show so much in '93? Exactly. I think you are correct. He just he just wasn't quite satisfied with 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 what he had done. And he went back and uh, revamped, revamped some stuff. And that is a perfect segue to the next episode. We're going to pick up the next time. Speaking of big nights for me and Claudine, <laughs> the Count Basie Theater Show in March of 1993, that that'll be fun to discuss. So, yes, it will. We will. Yes, we will be back next time. And with that, I will wrap it up. None But The Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. You can find us on the web at com. On Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McClain saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.